you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin a new sermon series today, and, and I thought the best way to introduce that, that sermon series to you is to kind of let you know what my son's been involved with recently. Uh, he, has, he has taken up the, the, the sport of football. Now, Charlie has played baseball for, for a number of years, but uh, back in the spring, he told us, he, he, well, he told his mom and I, he said, if y'all don't sign me up for football, I'm going to go down there and do it myself. And so I guess that was about the moment that we decided, well, we ought to at least let him get his, get his mouth full of it and see if he likes it, and, you know, and we'll see where it goes from there. But he, his coach has this one thing that he does at the end of every practice. He gets all the players together down at the end, and they put their hands in, and, and, and he, he, he starts asking them, well, let me just show you. Who are we? Give Who are we? Give me three. One, two, three. Amen. Every practice. Who are we? Buford Wolves. Or I know that that pains some of you to say that out loud. I'm okay with that. It's fine. But the, the question, who are we? Who are we? And then at the end, one, two, three, family. Now, you know, it, that never happens that what few hairs I actually have on my head stand up and take note. I, I get excited about that. I get excited about it because that coach is instilling in those kids that they're not a bunch of individuals that are out there. They're on a team. They're united together for the, for the purpose of, of, of practicing and winning a ball game. They, they each have a role to play, yes, but they are a team. They are united together in this, in this common cause. And, and they're, they're part of something that's, that's bigger than just the, the sum of the individual parts. They're part of a family. Now, to be honest with you, I've been so encouraged by the response that he has gotten from his team that I thought we would just do that this morning. So y'all all get up together and get grouped in. No, you don't have to do that. But it is important that we ask ourselves that question. Who are we? Who are we? You know, I've been trying to answer that question in some way, shape, or form for the past 11 years that I've been your pastor. Since I first came here in 2010, I've been rolling that question in my, in my mind and in my thoughts. Who, who are we here at Ivy Creek? Um, and the more that I've contemplated the answers that I get to that question as I ask it, the more that I want to take those answers in a, and, and, and run them through the, the sieve and, and through the, the mesh of what Scripture tells us that who we are supposed to be and find out, do we match up where we should? About seven years ago, uh, I, I, as a part of my doctoral project, I was able to help formulate an answer to that question, who are we? It, it wasn't the reason that I started into the study of Philippians, but as a, as a part of studying through Philippians, the Lord just brought me to this answer, and, it, and it, it, you see it printed a lot of places around here. Who we aspire to be here at Ivy Creek is that we are a you-all, gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers that want our lives to count for the glory of God. Let me, let me say that again. We are a you-all, gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. Now, as I said, we, we, we came into that through our study of Philippians, and I realize that there are many, though, in this room who were not with us seven years ago when we walked through 
that study of this book. And, and while there's some of you who were here during that time, I believe that right now is the right time for us to, to go back and be reminded of who we are based upon uh, us looking at this study once again. So over the next few weeks, we're going to go back and we're going to take a good look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, and we're going to ask that question. Who are we? And in doing that, what I want us to do is to take that sentence that we came up with, the you all gospel first family of believers. I want us to take that sentence and I want us to break it down in its individual parts. Really, I guess you could call it, we want to reverse engineer it. We want to look at it in its individual parts and see how we got to that. How did we come to that understanding? And today I want us to look at that first descriptor that we are a you all family of believers. What does that mean? Well, as we turn to the first part of Paul's letters, I think that we get a little bit of a hint of what that looks like. So let's begin reading there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for this opportunity we have to open your word and your scriptures and to study them. Now we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand that which we will, we will look into from your text today. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we dive into the question, who are we? Let's consider, let's consider the opening greeting, the way that this letter is kind of formulated at the very outset, uh, because it's got the same structure that a lot of Paul's other letters that he writes in the New Testament, and, and really it's a very first century structure to a letter that begins by stating who's writing it. And so we see right up front that it's, that it's Paul and Timothy uh, who are writing this letter. Paul most likely was the one dictating uh, Timothy was doing a lot of the writing down. That's, that's what most scholars believe, how this, this letter came about. So they're the ones that write that. But, but what I want you to note about it is this. Paul was the founding apostle who founded the church in Philippi. According to Acts chapter 16, he was the one there who was leading the missionary journey into the area of Macedonia and specifically into Philippi who, who organized this church together. He was the founding pastor. He was the one who had invested heavily into that body of believers. And he obviously carried a great deal of influence and exercised tremendous authority over that congregation. What I want you to notice, though, is that Paul doesn't draw interest to any of that. He doesn't 
He doesn't get anybody talking about it. He doesn't even refer to himself as an apostle. He just simply calls him and Timothy bondservants. In some of your translations, you'll see he calls himself a slave. That's really what the word means. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. What that tells us right up front is that Paul is clearly focusing on Christ. His, his entire focus is right there on Jesus. But notice next, he goes on to reveal who he's writing the letter to. That's the second part. He, he's writing this letter to all the saints, listen, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. Now let me point out that, that, that not only here, but in his other letters, to be in Christ is Paul's way of, of describing and identifying those who had been united to Christ by faith. It's his way of describing who had, who had placed their confidence and their trust in Jesus and had been saved by the death and the resurrection of Christ. This is the same group of people that he calls saints. He doesn't call them saints because they're perfect. He calls them saints because they had been united to Christ through faith. Now it's that revelation, that very, what we would say, Christocentric revelation in these opening verses that, that alerts us to an important word. And, and, and really, this is how we're going to do things today. I'm going to give you a word, and we're going to just kind of hang our thoughts on it as we work our way through this passage. And, and the word, the first word that I want you to see because of this, this emphasis on Christ is simply this. It's the word gospel. Gospel. By gospel, what I mean is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Guilty sinners who deserve death and eternal punishment can be saved and gifted with eternal life. And that gift, that grace of God, it, it is applied to sinners who place their confidence and their faith in Jesus. And consequently, the message of the gospel tells us that salvation, it is not obtained by us working for it and earning it. Rather, it comes simply to us by the grace of Jesus. Now notice with me, how that centrality of the gospel message continues to weave its way through this text. You see, he's identified himself as the writer. He's identified the church there in Philippi as the addressee. And then Paul offers this blessing there in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what we recognize there is that just like the gospel... So this blessing begins with grace. It begins with an extension of grace to sinners who quite frankly stand condemned before God. They're undeserving of that grace, but yet God extends grace to them and it's only because of that grace that you and I will ever experience peace with God. You know, I think all of us want to have peace. We like to have a little peace in our yesterday. Yesterday I was in one of those one of those places where, really, I just wanted a little peace and quiet in the house, and there was no peace and quiet in the house to be found. And um, um, probably my, my, my response to my children and, and perhaps even to other people that might live in my house, like my wife, probably was not as good and as kind as it could have been because I was looking for some peace. I think all of us at times search for peace. We just want, we just want to have a settled spirit. We just want things to calm down and be calm. But what I want you to know is you can never have peace of God in your life till you have peace with God. You see, subjective peace that occurs when we have a settled spirit, 
We can only truly understand that and truly experience it when we've had the objective peace, the peace that comes from God when our account has been settled with Him. You see, here's the issue. All of us, according to Scriptures, are at enmity with God because we're sinners. We were born in our sin and we have lived and we have lived for ourselves all of our life in some way, shape, or form. And the Bible tells us that all of us are at enmity with God. We cannot experience the peace that comes from God until we have peace with God. And Jesus is the one who came to make peace between us and God. That is the grace of God. God's, whoever, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us this. God demonstrates, He proves His own love in this, that He sent His Son Jesus while we were still sinners. So Jesus is the one who comes. He is the gift of grace to us by which peace can be made with God. And once that happens... Everything begins to fall in place in our lives. It is only because Jesus Christ bore the burden of our sin on the cross and defeated death by rising again that we have any hope of peace with God. But when we have it, then we can not only have the peace that comes from our minds, we know that that comes because of God's grace. So throughout this opening greeting, what we see is that Paul has this emphasis on the good news. He has this emphasis on the gospel of the Lord Jesus and his words just drip with gospel grace. But I want you to take note of another significant aspect of Paul's opening salutation, we might say, because he makes sure that every member of the Philippian church recognized that he or she was the intended recipient of this letter. Notice, notice that Paul writes to all the saints. You see what he's not doing? He's not playing favorites. He's not chose one little group that he's going to talk to and not another group. He's not just saying that this select few over here is the only ones I'm interested in right now and not that group over there. No, he does identify the bishops and the deacons, but unequivocally and unmistakably, his letter is addressed to every man, woman, boy, and girl in the church in Philippi. It was to all the saints. In fact, notice how many times Paul comes back to that same sort of understanding in, 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 the, in this span of verses. In verses 3 and 4, notice that he says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. He says, making requests for you all with joy. In verse 7, he says, it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. And then he goes on to say, you all are partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, for God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you right now, if Paul was still alive and he was living in the South, he'd make a great Southerner because he loved y'all. He loved using it. You all. Here's the point. Each use of the term you all is important and it's intentional because it communicates that every member of that church was important. But though they were important, they certainly were not all alike. In fact, as we will see, the church in Philippi was ethnically, culturally, and generationally diverse. In fact, that leads me to the next word, the next hook on your outline. It's the word diversity. Diversity. To show you just how diverse this congregation was, let me point you to 
the book of Acts into chapter 16. And in that chapter, we are given really what we might call the, the birth record of the church in Philippi. And your homework is to go back and to read Acts 16 for yourself, about midway through all the way to the end. And I want you to tell you, I want you to know just how important that is. That don't, don't just brush that off. You need to go and to read Acts chapter 16 for yourself and compare it to what I'm about to tell you. Because you need to be students of the Word. That is who we're called to be, is to be students of the Word. So as the Scriptures say, be a Berean. That's what they were known for in Berea, is that they studied the Scriptures to make sure that that which I say is correct and true. And I want you to be Bereans here. So go and read this for yourself and, and see if you see the same thing that I do. What you get to when you get to Acts chapter 16 is you find that this missionary band of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke they have heard the Macedonian call. And now they have gone. Paul had been trying to go one direction and the Lord just kept prohibiting him from going in that direction. And suddenly in the middle of the night, he had this vision of a man that says, come over here to Macedonia. We need somebody to come to us. And so Paul went to Macedonia instead of where he was intending to go and he ends up in Philippi. And when he gets to Philippi, there are three different encounters that Paul and his missionary band had with folks there in Philippi. And the first one that he has an encounter with is a lady named Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy Middle Eastern Gentile woman who had relocated her lucrative business of selling purple cloth to the Roman province of, of Philippi. Somewhere along the way, we recognize that Lydia had become a proselyte of, of Judaism. And according to this, what we read in Acts 16 we recognize that, that she ultimately came to faith in Jesus Christ because Paul and his band, Paul went to this place where they were, her and some other women were praying and he made a reasoned explanation of the gospel to her. And the Bible says that she believed in Jesus Christ. That's the first convert that we see in Philippi. On the heels of her story, we read about another female, a young girl, who's given no name in the text, but we learn, nevertheless, was possessed by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit gave her the ability to tell people's fortunes. And the girl had been enslaved by some wicked men who, who made her their slave, and, and, and they used her ability to tell fortunes as a means of producing profit for them. And what we read is that after many days of interaction with her, Paul became annoyed with her antics. And he commanded that that evil spirit come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And immediately, the demon left her, and she was delivered from its power. But not everybody was happy about that, as you can imagine, most notably, the two men that owned her. They had Paul and Silas arrested, and they had him beaten and thrown into prison, and that's where we meet the next convert in Philippi. He's the man that we know as the Philippian jailer. And as I said, I'm going to trust for you to go back and read this for yourself and note all the other details that are in these stories, but it was about midnight. Listen, rather than crying and cursing, which is likely what many of us would have been doing under the circumstances after having been thrown into jail doing what they, what they did, rather than crying and cursing, though, Paul and Silas are praying and praising the name of Jesus through song. And it was such a thing that all the other inmates that were there were paying attention they were listening they couldn't believe what they were hearing but about midnight an earthquake 
shook everything and all the doors flung open and all the chains that held them came open and even the stocks that Paul and Silas were in somehow or another broke loose. And it was such a major thing that even the jailer himself woke up and he saw what had occurred and surely, he says, they've all left and escaped and he was just about to take the sword and plunge it into his own chest and kill himself when Paul called out to him and stopped him and said, don't do that, we're all still here. And I want you to know the jailer could not believe. He, first of all, he couldn't believe what all he'd heard coming from the jail to begin with. But then he couldn't believe that at the first chance that those men had to escape, they didn't leave. And so a quaking began to occur within his soul that was greater than any physical earthquake that he could have ever experienced. And he ran into the jail and he fell down before Paul and Silas and he said, Sirs, tell me what must I do to be saved? Tell me what I can do to become what you get what you've got. You've got something I don't have. The Bible says that they began to explain to him that very night what it meant to be a believer in Jesus Christ and that that night he and his entire household believed and placed their faith in Jesus and baptized. And here's what I want you to know. There's many things that come to my mind as I work through all three of those various interactions that Paul had with those folks, but here's the one word that I keep coming back to. Diversity. Diversity. You see, in these accounts, we're introduced to a Middle Eastern woman, a young girl who was most likely Greek, and a Roman man. Furthermore, we read about one who was wealthy, one who was poorer than poor, and one who was middle class. And through their conversion stories, we read about one whose introduction to the gospel came through a reasoned explanation. One whose salvation and conversion experience began with an extraordinary display of the miraculous deliverance from a demon, and then one whose conversion was initiated by the fact that he witnessed firsthand the power of the truth of the gospel. Diversity. In fact, one might be hard-pressed to assemble a more diverse group, and yet they all came together as the first converts of the members of the church of Philippi. And what I want you to know is that that is how the Lord works. He draws very different people from very different backgrounds to himself. In the process, he becomes the unifier. He brings us together by his grace and he puts us into relationship with each other so that we can learn from one another and we can love one another as a testimony to the world of his saving grace. I can tell you that that is, what, that is what your staff experiences on a regular basis here at Ivy Creek. One of our great joys is to sit down with folks who come and, and want to become members of this church. And, and we have been doing this literally for years and years. And, and sometimes my, my, my friends ask me, how long do you think you can continue to do this? Is as long as I can. Because one of the things we love doing is sitting down and listening to the stories about how individuals and who come from membership of this church came to faith in Christ. What, what was God doing in your life? How did he bring you to this place? Listen, and I have heard stories like you wouldn't believe that come from all over the place. Stories of, of those who came to faith in Christ as young children in vacation Bible school who've never known a day of their life that Jesus wasn't Lord. And then I've heard the stories that come from those that were all the way up in their 70s. Some of them I've even led to the Lord in those meetings. 
where we've been able to talk about what grace is all about and they begin to share how they, they ran from the Lord for years and how God did some miraculous things to bring them. And you know what? I love the diversity of the stories because they all bring us back to the one thing and that is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ extended to sinners who did not deserve it but who came to faith in Jesus and that he has brought them to this place with the unifying understanding that we are all one in Christ. I want you to know it's not just a description of who we are right here today. It's also a description of who we're going to be one day. If you turn to the last book of the Bible, it's the book of Revelation. And just, just it's not revelations either. It's not multiple revelations. It's the one revelation that we get to there. And that's important because it's the one revelation given to the Apostle John. And he writes it down. And you know what he tells us in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10? He said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no, no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love what Tim Challies has written about this. He says, what lies in front of us, listen, is a future of complete unity amid incredible diversity. God's purpose in eternity isn't to have us worshiping in enclaves divided by color or ethnicity or ability or preference. Rather, he says, we will worship together as people of one nation, children of one father, bricks of one temple. And by God's grace, he means to give us a foretaste of that today, a faint scent of a familiar place, a distant glimpse of a promised land, a far off sound of a joyful song. And that brings me to the third word that I want you to see today. The third hook on your outline is just this. It's unity. Unity. Yes, yes, we are diverse, but we are called to be unified. Let me point you back to those words, you all. Paul used those by referring to the members of the Philippian church. And he knew from his own experience just how diverse they were. But each one of them was important. In fact, as I mentioned at the outset, in the introduction to this letter, Paul is embracing every single member of that congregation, and in doing so, he reminds us that that's our responsibility as well. But let's be honest, that can be hard. You know, even within this congregation, sometimes our cultural background, sometimes our life experiences, certainly our generational perspectives, Sometimes our points of view that we have about this particular issue or that particular issue or that thing that's going on over there, our opinions about those things, well, sometimes that may naturally just make it where we just don't feel like we fit with one another. Here's the beautiful thing. When, when we become united by faith in the Lord Jesus, when He truly becomes our unifier, then something amazing happens. We become supernaturally and inseparably interwoven into a body that is one. We become a you-all family. In fact, I would say it this way. We may have come here as a bunch of individuals, but in the Lord, we become a you all. In the Lord, we become a family. I think we need to recognize that here at Ivy Creek. 
Our church is, is made up of many, as many as five generations living together, worshiping together, doing life together. And what that means is that there's great diversity among our congregation, not only with regard to age, but with regard to ethnicity and also our cultural experiences. And those distinctions can often tempt us to isolate and draw circles around ourselves. But we must not allow those distinctions to divide us. They must, they must certainly and without question never overshadow the fact that as saints, as we are saints who are in Christ Jesus, and we are a you-all family. That brings me to the fourth word. And the final hook that I want you to see on your outline today, and it's the word we've already mentioned many, many times so far today, and it's the word family. What do we mean when we say that? Well, I think it's important to note that one of the key metaphors that is used throughout the New Testament to describe the church, the the localized body of believers that meet together, is, is family. In fact, one a couple of Paul's favorite terms was to use was brothers and sisters. We, we use that a lot here too. Brothers and sisters are good words because it refers to who we are. And furthermore, Scripture teaches us that when a person places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus, they are adopted into the family of God. Now, it's, it's, it's obvious to me that, that that kind of metaphorical language of using the idea of family to be descriptive of what the church is supposed to be is designed to give us a common thread by which we can understand what the church is is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function. In fact, because a church is a spiritual family, I believe there are certain characteristics that are similar to or at least should be similar to our physical families. For example, physical families are made up of multiple generations. They're comprised of children and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and in some cases, great-great-grandparents, all of whom have do life together. Some live partially together in, in, in the same home. Others, others live close enough, and they are part of one another's lives on a regular basis. And so I, too, think a healthy church should look like that. I think it should be comprised of multiple generations. I quoted Tim Challies earlier, This is another quote with which I agree that he has made. He says a church without grandparents is just as sick as a church with only grandparents. And I agree with that. The reason that's the case is because healthy church families, just like healthy physical families, are not made up of only one or two generations, but they are multi-generations. And I would even take it a step further and say that we ought to be, a healthy church family ought to be intergenerational. In other words, we're not just comprised of people who are only interested in our own thing. We're not just groups that come together and sort of exist out there individually and bang into one another once in a while. No, we are intentional that we want to be together. We want to do life together. We want to influence each other. We want to be a part of each other's lives. And the reason that is the case is because as a family, we recognize that we belong to one another because we ultimately belong to Christ. We're going to see more of that as we work our way through this study in Philippians. 
But for the moment, I simply want to draw your attention to the fact that as believers, we are a part of God's family, which is a very real and a very eternal, in a very eternal sense, it unites us together in a familial relationship that will endure throughout eternity. When we use those terms, brothers and sisters around here, we don't just say it because it's fun to say. We say it because it accurately represents who we believe each other to be. You are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. We are family. We are committed to one another. You know, recently, I was in a seminar where the speaker discouraged pastors from using the word family to describe their congregation. And, 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 and you know, I'm not... His reasoning was that such a term communicates that there are those that are inside the family and that there are those who are outside the family. And to a degree, I understand where he's coming from, and I, I think he's right. You see, those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have confessed their sins and placed their faith in the atoning work of Jesus, well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that they have been adopted into the family of God. On the other hand, those who refuse God's grace offered to them through Christ, those who who steadfastly reject the gospel, well, they are referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 as the sons of disobedience. So in other words, those are the ones who remain separated and estranged from God the Father outside the family. The distinctive difference between those two groups, those who are part of the family of God and those who are outside of the family of God, really can be defined this way. It's those who have placed their faith in Jesus and those who have not. Listen, what I want you to know is it is not by birth that we claim membership in God's family. Neither Lydia, the slave girl, or the Philippian jailer were born into God's family. Rather, they, just like all of us, were born with a fallen and sinful nature that leaves us condemned before God. And the only way that they or anyone else can become part of God's family is through rebirth. That is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you must be born again. And to be born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, means that you must place your faith in Him, in Jesus and in Jesus. And what Jesus goes on to reveal is that those who place their faith in Him, they no longer stand condemned before God because our guilt has been removed. We've been pardoned and we've been gifted with eternal life. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we are now heirs with God and joint heirs with Jesus. We are family. But listen, those who do not believe, those who do not embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, well, just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, they stand condemned already because they're in their sins. And apart from Christ, they will remain condemned and they will suffer God's wrath for eternity. And that is why I believe, I truly do believe that the use of the word family is good and healthy for the church. It reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of our responsibility that we have one to the other, but it also openly testifies to the world around us that we have been united in a familial bond that can never be severed all because of what Christ has done for us. And the blessing, that blessing is ours, not because of anything that we have done, but rather it is because of what He has done. And that same grace is available to all who will place their faith 
in him. Now, I said at the outset that this was going to be an overview and an introduction to the question, who are we? And I want you to know that in the coming weeks, we're going to kick that question around more and more. And we're going to look at it from various angles and from different ways. Based upon what we've looked at this week, I offer you my sermon in the sentence for today, and it's this. Though we may be quite diverse in many ways, as a you-all family of believers, we are united together in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the case, and I believe that it is, here's the question that I have for you in response. If that's who we are, that's who we say we are, question I have for you is this, is that you? Is that you? Have you been united to this diverse family of believers through your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to save you? If you haven't, I want you to know that's where it all begins. In just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and, and you're going to have the opportunity to come forward and grab my hand or Pastor Ted's hand or Pastor Dave's hand. If you are not a believer in Christ, I want you to know no one in this room is going to look down upon you for coming up and asking for prayer and asking to talk with us, not a person in this room. In fact, there are people who are right now in another building praying for this room and praying for you right this very minute, and they've been praying for you all day. And so I want you to know that you have the opportunity right now, in just a moment, to come say, I want to know what it's like. I want to be a part of this family. I want Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins. And I want to know that I have an eternity that is secure and because of what he has done. You're going to have that opportunity. And I want you to, I want, I'm going to ask you to do something bold, and that's to step out and come take one of our hands and let us begin to pray with you. That's the first way that you can respond this morning. There are some of you in the room that that's what, you've already done that and you, you, you count yourself to be a part of the family of God and, and you're a believer, but you're not a part of this local church family. I want you to know that when you come to faith in Christ, that's a very important thing and you become a part of the global family of God, but there are great blessings and great benefits that come from sharing and being a part of a local church family. For some of you, that may be the next step that the Lord is directing you to take. And if so, then you too may want to come take one of our hands or catch us out on the front porch after the service is over with and say, hey, I want to, I want to set up a time where I can come in and I can talk with you guys and I can just share with you my testimony and be able to be a part of this church family. Maybe that's the next step for you. Finally, as we conclude today, though, in light of the answer that we've come to, maybe you are a believer and maybe you're a part of this church family, then, then what are you to take from this? Well, I would just simply say this. Are you sharing the good news of the gospel with others? Like Paul, are you sharing a reasoned explanation with other people about why the gospel is important? Like him, are you, are you relying on and praying for the supernatural intervention of the Lord in the lives of those with whom you come in contact regularly? Like him, are you, are you living, is your testimony such that people look at you and say, I want some of what he or she's got? Is the gospel something that you're living out and talking about and letting it permeate every part of you every day of your life? Brothers and sisters, this gospel 
This good news of Jesus is too good to keep to yourself. And it has too long of lasting implications not to be shared and to remain quiet about. Are you sharing the good news of the gospel? Who are we? We we are to be a you-all family who is united together in the fellowship of the gospel. That is who we are to be based upon the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here at this moment in this time to be able to study your word. Now I pray that your Holy Spirit would be given the freedom to move in and among our congregation this morning. That you would bring conviction into the lives where conviction needs to be brought. That people would leave here resolute. They know exactly where their, where their confidence is. They know where their family is, is, is located and they're locking arms to go out into this world and share that good news. I pray that that would be who we are because I believe that's who you've called us to be. So Lord, we ask for your blessings and we ask for your, your work in our lives as we enter into this time of invitation in Christ's name.